first reading is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 14. It can be found on page 1180. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from John, chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. It can be found on page 1079 of the uh, Bibles next to you. That's John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was meant that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, 
but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we sit again in that room at that simple feast and watch again the lavish, generous offering of love for our Saviour. Open our eyes that we may see what is going on in that room, in the loving heart of our Lord. Open our hearts too, that we too may respond with worship and gladness for all that he is for us and for our world. Amen. a slight sense of déjà entendu for you this morning, the same passage that we had two weeks ago. It's come up by chance from two different directions, but it gives me a wonderful opportunity to explore the same moment, the same passage, but this time not from the perspective of Mary, which is the way that we looked at it last time, from her, the point of view of her loving generosity, Today I want to look at it from the point of view of Jesus as he begins his journey towards the cross. Jesus returns, as we were hearing, to the same household, the same home, where a few weeks before he had demonstrated the greatest sign of his power and authority as Messiah in raising his friend Lazarus from the dead to life again. So as he returns, the house is in uproar at his return. Parties and celebrations. But Jesus himself is in a more somber mood. To him, this sign isn't just another miraculous demonstration of God's power in him. It's the sign he's been waiting for all these years the sign that his time has come. Jesus has known from the very beginning that the climax of his ministry is not to be crowned king by the crowd, to drive out the Romans from Jerusalem, and to live out his days in a palace there in the holy city of God. Being king, for him, we discover through John, means laying down his life for his flock. As he said to his disciples, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be not crowned and honored and blessed and praised, but betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. 
and on the third day he will rise again from the dead. And now that last sign, the rising from the dead, has come. So here he is, just the other side of the ridge of olives that overlook Jerusalem. Tomorrow he will walk over that ridge with his disciples and down into the city of Jerusalem. His plans are already in place for the donkey on which he'll ride, which will symbolize that he comes to his city as king, but not in war, but in peace. And riding that donkey, he will broach the gates of his city as king of the Jews. He'll take up his rightful place as royal priest in the temple of his father and speak to his own of righteousness and evil, of heaven and hell, of restored relationship with the Father. And then, rejected by the leaders and by the mob, and handed over to violent death, he will take up his other rightful place as the Lamb of God. He will be the scapegoat, the sacrifice which takes away the sins of the world. And as he is slain, he will forge a way through to the Father's presence for all time and for all people. On the cross, he will undertake the greatest of all tasks, to hold fast in holiness and purity as he is deluged with all the filth and the wickedness of the world. And he will pay for it all, offering a righteousness that does not rely on the law, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in him. And there on the cross, crowned with thorns and robed with agony, he will identify to the uttermost with his people and take his throne of sacrificial generosity. He'll give the greatest of all possible gifts to those who have rejected him. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, and life eternal by the laying down of his life. And he'll do all of this for the love that is within him entrusting himself to his Father's vindication and the promised hope of glory. This is what is on Jesus' mind as he sits at table amongst his friends and receives their honor and gratitude. He knows they are grateful. He knows they are faithful, most of them. But he also knows but they don't really understand what is happening. And then suddenly, the house is filled with a beautiful fragrance. For a moment, the cross lifts from his shoulder. His broken feet are refreshed. He feels not the bite of the nail, but a tender kiss. And looking down, he sees not brutal hands, 
but gentle ones. Not hostile scowls, but loving eyes looking up into his own. And yet around him, on the periphery of his vision, there are still mutterings and scowlings, lovelessness and greed, deceit and betrayal. And he is reminded, this is why, this is for whom. This is the love which the Father has imbued in his creation. This is the suffering and the wickedness that the Son sets himself to overcome. These are the tears and the sneers that the Spirit seeks to overwhelm with laughter and song. This is the generosity of the Spirit, of the Trinity, echoing in faithfulness and worship. This is the fellowship of the Godhead, which it has ever sought to evoke in creation and to draw into eternal communion of joy. The soothing feel and scent of the perfume the kiss of faithful lips, the tender hands caressing broken feet, the eyes that wept before Lazarus's cave tomb with its stone seal, all remind him of his own tomb and his own broken body to be laid on a shelf behind his own great stone sealing the tomb. And in that moment of quiet, entombed grief, all sin and grief will be dealt with. The work of the Son will be finished. He will wait in quietness for the Spirit of the Father to come upon him in transcendent power, to repeat more gloriously the waking from the dead at Lazarus's tomb. As he said to his disciples, they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will rise again to life. Yet for the Son, it will not be like Lazarus to the same mortal, limited life, but to a new, triumphant life-giving, glorious, eternal life of the Father. And this life the Son will give to his dear faithful ones, this dear faithful one weeping at his feet, to these other dear faithful ones seated around in surprise and shock and wonder, and to all those others not yet conceived of who will hear and choose and receive at his hand, not perfume, but eternal joy. And so they too will offer back to the Father for his sake the offering not just of it, their expensive treasures, but the perfume of their faithful lives. And the words of one of his faithful servants to be. Whatever was to my profit, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus.